Hello, and welcome to Politics World Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Ro Khanna, a Democratic House member who was just reelected with 71%, and Tyler Bridges who of New Orleans, who is a journalist and author who's written a fascinating book about one of the most incredible football games of all times. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicsworldroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Henson Shaving, Raycon, and Upside in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James Carville, uh, a lot to talk about uh, eight days after the election, but let's start with Donald Trump, twice impeached, discredited in the midterm elections, Ron DeStanis breathing down his back, uh, four criminal investigations going on, declared his 2024 presidential campaign. It was, as the incomparable Maggie Haberman wrote, a rambling string of exaggerations, falsehoods, and self-praise. I think the two reasons he did this James, I want you to weigh in. Uh, He believes it may be harder to indict him when he's declared candidate. I'm not sure it will be. And and his narcissistic insecurities are going bonkers with all the attention that DeSantis is getting. One thing was fascinating. The networks didn't cover it. MSNBC didn't cover it. CNN, which in 2016 uh, made a huge in-kind contribution to Trump by covering everything he did, uh, uh, didn't cover most of it. And most importantly, I watched Fox, the political crown jewel of the empire, Rupert Murdoch, who soured uh, on Trump. And um, Sean Hannity, the anchor, was on. He's still in the Trump tank. But they cut away uh, a couple times and seemed to strain to talk about how good he was. And I think one interesting question. In the next two weeks, will he campaign for Herschel Walker in Georgia? And does Herschel Walker want him anywhere near? Well... Okay, there's a lot here. First of all, I read this morning, the kind of gleeful Brett Stevens and George Will. Well, we're finally done with stuff. Thank God we wash our hands of that. Yeah, you know, uh, hey, hey, dude, uh, not so fast. The first thing people have to remember is throughout history, movements love martyrs. And so the Trump people say, you know, Mueller in the New York Times and the establishment and the press and the Democrats and the socialists, they all tried to crucify Trump, but he fought them off. He fought them off, and who came and stabbed him right in the back? That's these establishment Wall Street Journal Republicans. And boy, people love that narrative. And, and I think what, what, what Trump did last night and uh, uh, the best way I can describe it, he gave the Republican Party long COVID. They think he's going away. Now, he gets indicted. I'm, 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 I think, and as do most people whose judgment I, I may have placed any trust in, think also is he'll get indicted. But you don't know how much of this he's going to be the victim. This, the, he's going to be horse wrestle or whatever, whatever it was, all right? He's going to be... Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a martyr for his own cause, a living martyr. And he and they think they're rid of him, but they ain't no more rid of him than people with long COVID or, or rid of COVID. Yeah, I think you make a really interesting point. I don't care 
what Murdoch says, I don't care what the columnists say, or even some of the members. I care. I think it's good. I wish they would have stood up, as you said earlier. Uh, but where his strength is, is not in endorsements, not even in Fox News. His strength is with those that mega crowd out there who he is buffaloed and deluded uh, for years, and but they but they really buy into it. And you know, if if he can play, as you say, the martyr card, that's exactly what Trump does. And um, as for Ron DeSantis, uh, look, he's a tough guy when it comes to LGBTQ, when it comes to teachers, when it comes to the Special Olympics, when it comes to Disney. He ain't never faced anything like Donald Trump. I mean, the people who were there at that rally last night or whatever you call it, Mar-a-Lago, Roger Stone, uh, the pillow guy, uh, your old colleague, not really Dickie Morris. I mean, it's, a, you know, some of the great sleazebags in the history of American politics. But they will go after DeSantis like he's never seen before. It doesn't matter if it's true. Uh, you know, he said Ted Cruz's father was involved in the Jack Kennedy assassination. But, you know, you've got to be prepared to take that. In 2016, Rubio, Cruz, Bush and the others were not at all prepared. And we'll see if Ron DeSantis is prepared. You know, again, I go back to martyrdom as a force in history. Try a minor religion called Christianity. My narrative is built around martyrdom. And that, that really motivates Trump's people because they have this sense. And they'll just say, Fox is just casting chips in with the establishment. They're in the deep state. I mean, I, look. You know, I think his chances of being the Republican nomination, yeah, I do. But I think the chances that he is not going to be a continuing huge force in Republican politics, uh, yeah, I do think that. Yeah, no, uh, no, I agree. Um, and, uh, you know, he's just as um, uh, he's just as much. He did not mention. I don't think I watched the whole thing. I don't think he mentioned uh, unless he did during the Fox cutaways. Uh, the big lie. Uh, he wasn't into election denial. Maybe he looked at the election returns and saw how well that went over in Arizona and uh, Nevada and other places. Uh, but and, and, you know, James, maybe it's more interesting to talk about. The Republican war games on Capitol Hill right now. Kevin, McCar- Kevin McCarthy was voted the choice of his caucus to be speaker. Republicans will be in the majority in January. But, you know, you need 218 votes to be speaker. And he is well short of that right now. And to get there, and I'm not sure he can, but to get there, he is going to have to make some of the some of the worst commitments you've ever seen, making it easier to top all speaker, more crazies in key roles. It's going to be a clown show. Well, remember, he had 31 votes against him. Steve Scalise was unanimous. Yep. And don't don't think that Steve Scalise doesn't know what the vote was, or Kevin McCarthy, or other people in that Congress, or the Democrats. The Democrats are going to be a big player in this because they don't. He said I was. He just got nominated by his party with thirty-one dissent votes to put his name before the whole house. Well, the whole house is going to have two hundred and fifteen Democrats. I mean, this is going to be a ongoing story, the likes of which you can't imagine. And I, you know, I'm glad we have ever get our listeners and, and say this is what's happening. And I still come to the view that they may want to go outside of the House for a speaker. 
It may not be. They may not be able to 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 come up with a name of a of a current member. I don't know that. And uh, oh, another thing with Trump, if if what Trump may do because he doesn't care about the Republican Party at all, he may run as a third party candidate. Don't don't that possibility. No, I I agree. Going back to the House, though, I I'm very skeptical of the outside. I, I just I can't think of anyone who could command the support of sufficient numbers of Republicans and Democrats. Maybe, uh, you know, I, I guess if I were to look at it right now, uh, McCarthy will do anything. He'll make any promises. If that's enough to get him a two eighteen, my guess is they'll start with two twenty one. He only have three defections. You know, fine. Uh, if not, I guess I would say Scalise is the likely backup. Would be a terribly uninspiring choice. It depends, you know, if, you know, the Freedom Caucus, you know, if they say, look, we just want to get gut through this thing, then they, they, but they got to get something that, you know, and there's still some Republicans that saw what happened and they don't want, they don't want to be in, in, in bed with the Freedom Caucus. Right, right. I'm not saying it can't be done. And, you know, when you say outside rights, you got to come up with a name, but, but you know, if he can't get then the police will try. They don't take, you can't give a politician that much power and not expect them to exercise it. And three Republicans are going to have an enormous amount of power. And you want to know how crazy and how, I mean, really crazy this caucus is. <laughs> In this context, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan are the moderates. I mean, that's all you need to know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah but I'm telling you. It's going to be very, very hard. And I, I think you were explaining to me one of the things they want is is a motion to vacate, which they can yeah, do any time they want. They can get rid of it because they, all the Democrats are going to vote for it. Right. Right. It's also they demand in a rule that they can't bring anything up on the House floor unless the Republican conference votes it out, and, and that's a very heavily laden Freedom Caucus organization. Well, and what they're going to try to do is bring up a whole bunch of messaging things, on whether it's on guns or the wall or cracking down on poor people. Um, but they may have enough, I mean, between uh, Bacon in Nebraska and uh, the guy in Bucks County, Fitzpatrick, who always wins, one or two of the New Yorkers, a couple of the Californians. I mean, they may have seven or eight who say, I'm sorry, I'm concerned conservative, but I ain't going to do this insane stuff. So uh, it's going to, it really is going to be an absolute, it's a shit show, not a clown show, James. It's really, if they get, if they put that motion to vacate, if that becomes viable where they can vote on Kevin McCarthy anytime they want to, then. Uh, well, what they can do is they got him on the shortest possible leash. They can say they they can say I'm sorry. Sit, Kevin. Um, yeah, give me your paw, Kevin. If he doesn't do it, he's out. But 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 the problem is you got a bunch of people saying sit, but you got enough that saying stand. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, but but what I'm saying is if they go and they get that motion and they move to vacate, he's almost sure going to lose. Yeah. So only only three Republicans. Yeah. It's going to be. You know, he's such an unsympathetic human being. I mean, he really is. It, 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 I, I, I got to tell you, there's something I'm mean, excited for. It. I don't know what the, you know, I guess that's the word I'm looking for. 
But to watch him in agony is, is, is really kind of gratifying. It is. You know, on the other side uh, of the Capitol, uh, there's also a war games going on. Uh, I, I'm going to say something I've never said before and will probably never say again. Of all the Republicans responsible for this debacle in, on November the 8th, in which they did not take back uh, the Senate, Mitch McConnell is essentially innocent. He didn't want these crazy candidates. The guy that did, uh, mainly besides Trump, was Rick Scott. So Rick Scott is challenging McConnell for the leadership. He doesn't have any chance, James. He's going to be lucky to get much into double digits. But what it does is it just creates more of a more friction, a more mess, and they're going to be probably sometimes uh, in his in his sort of the shape as the House Republicans. Yeah, uh, and that's so unusual for them. I mean, what's really unusual, uh, you know, between two of us, how long we've been in power, it's like th th there's no dims and disarray for it. And, you know, we've been used to the Republicans marching in lockstep and, you know, and everything, and Democrats being a you know, big, unruly party, you know, party, this and that. That's completely changed. And by the way, the, the deeper you get into this analysis, I guess I was reading Nate Cohn's point, that what really made the difference is the Republicans that voted Democratic were just a lot more than Democrats that voted Republican. Right, that plus the independents. Yes. Right. Yeah. But it wasn't, it, it wasn't on, on, on turnout. And people keep repeating the same shit with all, without any of the evidence. But they keep saying the same thing. It's also crazy. Well, you know, when you look at that Senate, that new class of Senate Republicans, uh, there is a, a I, for lack of a better term, a really a, a Trumpish fringe group. A lot of them Ivy League educated uh, uh, law clerks of the Supreme Court justices, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, uh, and a bunch of others. Uh, they, I, they, they really are... They do bad things, just put it that way. But they're 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 going to be strengthened in this new con uh, Congress when J.D. Vance replaces Rob Portman, when uh, the guy in North Carolina, Ted Budd, replaces Richard Burr. Ted Budd is just as bad; he's just dull. And 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 and, and when the new senator from Missouri replaces Roy Blunt, uh, the um, you know the fringe the fringe caucus is going to be much stronger, and that ain't good for Mitch McConnell. But don't worry, Chuck Grassley can stand up to him. He's not nothing. Yeah, well, that's right. Exactly. Bill, uh, you know, Chuck, you know, Chuck I, I think we, James, let's be respectful to Republicans. And I think on both Chuck's 90th and his 95th birthday, uh, let's let's give a celebration to the senator from Iowa, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, one of the things people, they're talking about how we dodged the bullet in Arizona. Well, we did, but we barely dodged it. Oh, yeah. And that, that attorney general's race is not over yet. It looks good, but it's not over. My, my, my dear friend, I want to get him on the show, Cisco Aguilar, who is the secretary of state elect in Nevada. He, shit, he, we didn't know Cisco was going to win the four days after the election. I saw about 6,000 votes. I, I mean, we better be careful about taking too much comfort in how democracy won. I mean, it, it, it won, but 
Man, it was close. They're coming. Let me tell you, you are so right on this. Anybody who says, okay, fine, we want Nevada, we want in Arizona, we want some other places. So democracy is no longer uh, threatened. That is total, complete crap. I mean, democracy is still under assault. Uh, they just didn't gain oh. traction this time. That guy Merchant in, in, in Nevada said, if I'm Secretary of State, we'll never lose another election. Right, right. Guy in Wisconsin said the oh, same thing. He almost won. Okay, he almost won. Yep, yep. And, and one of the good stories, and I'm glad that we had something to do with it, I'd like to see how much money the Democratic secretaries of state raised and spent. They did well, and, and, and they did well in the state legislative races, too. I, I want to make a, a macro observation here. So I'm out here at Southern Cal, University of Southern California. We're on a bunch of events tomorrow. And I'm going to tell young people, you know, you, if, if you ask me sitting where I sit, what is the biggest issue in American politics? I've got a, it is not even close. It affects everything, and it's never talked about very much at all. And it is the massive, unspeakable, pervasive, staggering corruption. The, the corrupt, when they come and find out the amount of money that was spent and the amount of dark money, everything, you're not going to believe what it is. It's so much you can't believe it. And, it, and it, it's exponentially bigger. And you're right. Climate's an issue and these kinds of things. But you, until you identify the root causes of climate inaction, which I can tell you what they are right now, money, and, and you're going to get the same hit. And it's going to happen the same thing. The, 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 the Federalist Society got a billion dollars. A fucking billion dollars. Okay, James, that reminds me. You know who we got to get in this show? I saw last night Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's just written a book on this very subject. Absolutely. And we have to have him on in the next couple of weeks. You know me well enough and long enough that when I, I, I get a, a bone in my mouth, and I just, I, I just think that this issue is so staggeringly big and it affects everything yeah. that, that people can't imagine. And they're out there and the, the social justice activists are doing this and environmental activists are doing that. And, uh, you know, and, and that's great. But you ain't going to get shit done because you are fighting the, the, the most profitable enterprise in the history of the world is the extraction, refinement, and transportation of fossil fuels. Well, there is no one better to talk about this dark money scam than Sheldon Whitehouse, and we will get him on. I just want to, on this, on, this, on this segment, I just want to leave you with a picture of with Donald Trump and Roger Stone and the pillow guy and Dickie Morris. That's all you need to know about him. <laughs> okay. Of assholes since Danny Snyder signed the loan. All right.
James, our guest is California Congressman Ro Khanna, an influential member of the House Progressive Caucus, just reelected with over 71% of the vote. Congratulations, Congressman. Uh, we're going to, we, we actually, we set this up uh, weeks ago talking about the letter in Ukraine uh, written by your caucus. We'll get to that later. But first, you, you wrote a really interesting column this week, I think for the Boston Globe, calling on Democrats to embrace an economic patriotism, revitalizing manufacturing jobs, windfall profits tax, more affordable housing, lowering child care costs. It was it was really a good election for your party. But were these issues not as sufficiently articulated as, as, as you thought they should be? Well, first, it was a huge win. And the president deserves credit uh, for making two issues salient. One is uh, the sanity, that the person who loses votes should actually concede elections and that we shouldn't elect election deniers. Turns out the American people care about that. And of course, reproductive choice. I mean, the Republican position was so extreme. It's not just that they were against the freedom to choose. They were against abortion, even in the case of incest and rape. That's not a position Ronald Reagan took. That's not a position George Bush took. They were way out on the fringe. And the president and our party did a good job exposing that. So. I think it was an odds-defying result. My point was that consistently we still don't have trust on the economy, uh, and that's frustrating to me given that their plans are basically uh, run tax cuts, uh, and that's all they offer, nothing about how to bring jobs back. This president's bringing manufacturing jobs back, nothing about how you're going to help the working families in this country, and so we need a clear economic agenda and I say it's economic patriotism and that we offshored way too much of our production over the last 40 years. We need sort of a moonshot on economic revitalization to bring production back. You know, I think all that makes great deal of sense. I would just add one thing to your comment about Republicans. It's tax cuts usually for the well-to-do. Uh, I mean, that's there. It has been for the last 40-some years. But uh, all the things you talk about, windfall profits tax, uh, more manufacturing jobs, affordable housing, uh, lower costs for, for child care. Though with, with this Congress, none of that is possible, is it? Republican majority in the House, only 51 votes in the Senate. So you're really talking about messaging for the next election, aren't you? Well, the manufacturing part, some of it could be possible. Uh, the CHIPS Act, which I helped co-lead with Senator Schumer, Todd Young, was bipartisan. People realized we need to make semiconductors in America. I'm actually working, surprisingly, with Marco Rubio on a bill to create an economic development council. He agrees we need government investment in some of the strategic industries. So on that, there's some hope. But for most of the other things, look, there's there's just corruption. You know, Sheldon Whitehouse and I have been talking about a windfall profits tax. Let me tell you something. In Europe, the oil companies go and they say, we're fine paying a windfall profits tax. Shell Oil Company, look it up. They say, we understand Europeans are hurting. We're fine paying a 20% tax. Boris Johnson got it passed in, in, in England, uh, a conservative government. Why can't we get it passed here? Why can't the American people be helped? Because big oil gives a lot of money to, to Congress people and senators. I mean, that's the honest truth. We're going to get Sheldon on this show because uh, he, he's written a fascinating book uh, about this. Let me ask you one more thing before I turn it over to James. Would you like to see Nancy Pelosi stay as the Democratic uh, minority, be Democratic minority leader now in the House? Yeah, she's earned the right. I mean, look, uh, she uh, had one of the best midterm performances. 
She's strong. She knows how to stand up to the Republican Party. She's one of the most effective speakers of the House. Uh, I would vote for her, um, but it's her decision. I mean, she's certainly earned the right to make that decision. Yeah. Well, as you know, I'm a great deal older than you are. I've been here for a long time, and I will say unequivocally, she is the greatest speaker in my lifetime, and maybe ever. I mean, there's, her legacy is extraordinary. James? Oh, 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 you must have, you got to listen to the beginning of the show because we talked about Sheldon and I, I just think that is one issue that dominates American politics like no other and that's corruption. I, I think that everything, if you took it climate, or you took anything else, this country has become a massive cesspool of corruption. When the, when the uh, Leonard Leo's group has a billion dollars a billion dollars to own the federal judiciary. All right, when, when we're going to find out how much dark money was spent in this cycle, people are, are, are not going to believe it. And we, I, I, I'm here at uh, Southern Cal speaking to these students, and I, I'm saying you can do, you can protest all you want, you can march down the street, but if you are not focused on corruption, you're going to lose the country. I, and I really mean that. I, I, I really, the, I, the rest of my days on this earth are going to be spent talking about corruption. And the fact that you brought it up uh, gets our interview off to a good start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, James, I mean, Sheldon Whitehouse is, you should have him on. I'll text him after this that he should do the show. I mean, I'm sure he'd be happy to do it. But, you know, he wrote a book on dark money. He's been talking about dark money. Here's what he'll tell you. He said there are Republican members of Congress where if you offer to raise them $100,000, they will say, uh, well, I don't know if I really want to do it. Uh, is there golf? Is there good dining? Do I really have to go? Because they don't have to raise money anymore. They need two or three multi-billionaires who are going to put in 20, 30 billion into a super PAC. That's how they're funding their campaigns. And the reason we don't have a windfall profit site, the reason we can't take on big pharma, the reason we still have uh, all these extraordinary health care costs is because of the influence of big money, and it's why so many jobs were offshored with the multinational corporations. So, so you and Sheldon are both Democrats, right? You, yes. Members of the same coalition. I am. I'm going to tell me. I'm going to tell you my problem with some people in the Progressive Caucus. They don't like the Democratic Party. They never run against anything but other Democrats. All right, that's just a fact. The, the Justice Democrats, the Working Family Democrats. That whole operation goes around, and I, I don't know. I didn't, Joe Crowley, I didn't even know it. Elliot Engel, I didn't know. Well, they're not the problem with America. Why don't these people ever run against a Republican? Why do they I'll just you, run against Democrats? I'll tell you why. First of all, I'm very proud of the Democratic Party, proud of the, uh, what Franklin Roosevelt did, who really built the, the industrial base, proud of Joe Biden, who I'm supporting for re-election. You know, I think he's, he's had an incredibly significant term. But here's the situation. You got a Congress that is, you know, mostly in their 60s. You got young people that are not being able to raise the millions of dollars. You, when Bill Clinton ran for Congress, I think he had to raise like thirty or $40,000 in 1974. Now, you can't even talk about it if you can't raise a couple million dollars. And a lot of these people are in their 20s, 30s. They've seen the American dream uh, slip away. And they're sitting in districts where an incumbent has been there for 20 years. And they're, they're like, why should we just defer to incumbents? We want to get in the game. We want to be leaders. So I have no problem with young people who want to run in their districts uh, against... Don't run against a Republican. 
What are you well, running against somebody that's not the problem for? And uh, if they actually will tell you, but I, they don't like the Democratic Party, right? And you, now you're saying, well, you want Nancy Pelosi to be speaker, but you, what they really got to do is, is is have somebody primary uh, 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 a Democrat that you don't agree with everything on. I'm just saying they don't want to be in the coalition. That's not their role. They, they want to perform. They want to tell you how moral they are and how immoral you are. And that's their whole thing. You're not like that. And there are other members of, and I don't mind, I can, I don't like to say, when people say, how does it feel to be a moderate Democrat? I tell I am not a moderate Democrat. God damn it. I'm a liberal Democrat. So you're right. liberal. You're liberal on immigration. But let me put it from different perspective. Congressman, we'll get James to tell you what he really thinks in a minute. But go, 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 let, go let ahead, me, Rob. Let me get, well, one minute on this. Let's say you're someone in your 20s, and you've seen that since 1985, the middle class and working class has lost 25% of wealth in this country. You can't afford health care. You can't afford uh, college education or vocational education. Uh, you're in debt. And then you've seen that this country has shipped off jobs. You're in communities where, uh, you, you know, the standard of living has gone down. Now, you're, you're there and you're saying this country isn't working it's, and we've got to have change. And I think that we will make a mistake as a party. We don't understand some of the anger and frustration that some of the younger generation feels. The reason that these things happen are somewhat caused by Democrats. Nothing is perfect. It's 90 percent a Republican issue. And, and they it, they don't want to run against Republicans. They never do. All right, and, and that's that, that's my thing. And I, I and I, I and I, like I said, you and colleagues like yourself that I don't know if you more maybe you're more progressive or liberal than I am. I don't really give a shit. You're, I, I like you because you're a Democrat, and and the, your economic agenda I think is fine. But the, the number one economic agenda, social agenda, climate agenda is corruption. That's what I really. It's what that's what I believe instinctively. And the more that I, as I get older, and as I grow older, I see how it's much worse than I ever thought. I was a defender of the system for a long time because I benefited from it. But not anything like a billion dollars. <laughs> so, you know, you know we'll, we'll think of. So, uh, I'm turning it back to Al. I'm sure he's going to ask you about the letter, cause, and I want to follow up on that also. So, Albert. Here's a one point on corruption. You saw Donald Trump's speech last night, which I pain myself to see. You know, he uses the word corruption, corruption, corruption all the time. So he's not very uh, substantive, but he's smart at the buzzword. And if the Democrats don't talk about corruption we, and the real corruption, we, we then we're going to cede that to Trump. We need the 28th Amendment. Nothing in this Constitution shall prohibit the Congress of the United States from regulating money and politics. We do. Now, and, and, uh, you talk, use that for an organizing tool. In state legislative races, use that for an organizing tool in congressional races, use that for organizing tool with activist groups and signing petitions and everything, then you'll have some. And people say, well, it's a constitutional member. You can't do that. Well, it's not. It's the 28th. They have, we have amended the Constitution before. But it's a rallying cry that we can all get behind. I love that. I would just say, Congressman. They're, they're going to start calling you a progressive, James. You keep that Yeah. 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 You, 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 can, you can make him an honorary member of, of, uh, of the caucus. Well, I would just say as a quick aside that when it comes to corruption, Donald Trump 
makes Richard Nixon look like St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, you've never had a more corrupt person in American politics. Let's go, you know, as we originally talked about coming on this show about three or four weeks ago, when we were quite critical uh, of a letter to the administration from the Progressive Caucus uh, on uh, stressing the need for negotiations in Ukraine. It was put out this fall, a staff mistake, the, uh, the head of the caucus said. You criticized, blaming the staff. And you have, as you said, voted for every uh, every Ukraine assistance package that came along. But why write that damn letter in the first place? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I don't think staff was to blame. I didn't like the fact that people tried to throw staff under the bus. Uh, they don't get elected. Members of Congress get elected. Stand by what you sign uh, and don't throw staff under the bus. I just think as a principle that that's not a good look. Second point all the hyperventilating by people, not you, but other people, oh, this is going to cost the Democrats, cost the Democratic election. Name me one race, one race in the entire country that was decided about this. People care about gas, abortion, other things. They weren't looking at some CPC letter. So I don't think this had an electoral outcome in one race. The third point is, look, I think Joe Biden has actually gotten this right. And I was speaking with Jake Sullivan and Secretary Blinken. They're, the point is, we got to stand with Ukraine. We've got to have uh, aid to Ukraine, but we also have to engage in diplomacy and talks with our counterparts in Russia. And President Biden has been very prudent. He has not given weapons that are going to escalate where it could hit Russian territory. He has made it clear that there's a risk of nuclear war and he's going to do everything to de-escalate. Uh, and he's instructed people to have conversations with his, the Russian counterparts to de-escalate. And then it turns out all these generals are coming out front page of the New York Times saying, almost the exact same thing in that, that was in that letter. So I didn't understand why there was such hoopla. Over it. Well, let me, I, you agree. I agree totally. It didn't affect a single election. It may have affected uh, one person, that's Vladimir Putin. His calculation, as you know, he's losing the war. I mean, you know, he's got the worst army, uh, you know, we've ever seen. Uh, but his calculation is the patience of the West will diminish. And that's how he'll prevail. And I, I would worry that whether it's that letter or Kevin McCarthy's warning about cutting Ukraine or even some of the generals plays into that Russian dictator's hands, not intentionally, but uh, I think it does. And, uh, you know, it, the administration knows you have to negotiate uh, ultimately. So, so why a, uh, I still don't understand why a public admonition. Well, I don't think it was an admonition. I think if you talk to folks in the administration, they think that there needs to be space for them to do what they need to do in talking to, to the Russians. Look at the height of the Cold War. R Ronald Reagan was talking to the Russians, and that was part of how we got them to leave Afghanistan. And I, I just don't think that I have, the problem I had with McCarthy is he was saying cut off the funding. The administration just has a $30 billion funding request to Ukraine. I'm going to go vote for it. I don't think there's going to be any controversy in the Democratic caucus to vote for that. But at the same time, uh, we can say that this is a country that wants to make sure that we're engaged in, uh, in, 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 in diplomacy so it's not escalating. And by the way, look, Vladimir Putin is evil. He's engaged in an unprovoked war. He's got 300,000 troops there. He can mobilize to 3 million. He's striking the electricity of Ukraine to create a brutal winner. People who think that this war is somehow uh, easily won or that Putin is uh, on, on his back foot, I think don't understand fully how brutal it is or the Russian uh, full military. So 
I think the administration's handling it right by trying to de-escalate the country. So do I, and he doesn't have midterm elections. Well, I'm sure James is going to pick up on this. Let me ask you one more question. I think I agree with you on 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 the economic patriotism issues. I think some, I think Democrats should have stressed it a little bit more in this election. It was a great election. I also think some should have taken on the crime issue more than they did. Now, let me ask you this. If there were a poll, any place, your district or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, wherever, and the question asked the voters is, which do you more identify the Democratic Party with? A, defunding the police, which very few do, or B, adding 100,000 more better paid cops. Which do you think would win in that poll? Well, I would hope the so latter. You think? I, I, but I don't know if that, I think we so hurt our brand with uh, some of that, uh, the, the defund the police, that uh, even though we passed bills to increase funding, uh, I still think we have to, to do more to get, get trust back. Look, I talk to cops in my district. I'm from liberal Bay Area. And you talk to residents and they'll tell you, you, you have a carjacking. They get arrested. They're back out in the street. They get arrested a second time, back out in the street. I guess arrested a third time. Finally, something may happen. Uh, no one wants that. You, you, you know, you, can't, you have to have some accountability for illegal action. doesn't mean if someone's 22, you lock them up for life. But it does mean that you have the rule of law and that you have, and you have police to keep us safe. Uh, and I, I think now that the party is in that direction, President Biden, I think, has been very clear in his State of the Unions that we believe in funding the police. And the votes in Congress show yep. that. James? All right. So, Congressman, uh, I'll go back because of what you don't That letter, did, did, was there any concern in retrospect that don't you think somebody rush this to Putin's desk and say, look what's happening in the United States. And then one of your colleagues, and I think her name was Congresswoman Jacobs, said, in politics, timing is everything. I wouldn't sign that the same letter today that I signed on June the 26th. What did you know, what did you find out about Vladimir Putin between now and June the 26th? I mean, y'all didn't know he was a criminal? A, 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 a mass murderer? A, a completely unreliable person? I, I don't think the timing was... I, I I stood by the words of the letter. I mean, I, I think that the letter... The letter just says we're going to keep funding Ukraine. It's unprovoked. The war is unprovoked. The uh, Putin is wrong, and we need to have de-escalation. And what I thought was ironic is somehow that the letter was portrayed as opposed to Biden's policy. Biden, I think, has been terrific on Ukraine. And the reason he's been terrific is that he stood up against Putin, but he's also stood up against hawks who want to kind of, who don't think the nuclear war is serious or escalation is serious. And Biden's saying, no, it is. These are, there's real risks. I think this is the greatest United States foreign policy success in World War II so far. I would yeah. agree with that. Yeah, I think President Lincoln. You know, I, I, we all, know what we think about the letter and the, uh, you're right it, it, it caused no political damage but uh, it, you know it, it, it was unfortunate and the, the, you know, I, I thank you for not blaming staff which is that, that's something that's just like you know because I got I got blamed for shit that I never did either <laughs> James, you know you remember this debate with and I have a lot of respect with Secretary Clinton but President Obama and Secretary Clinton they say they had this debate in 2008 and there was this question would you talk to your enemies? And Obama, Senator Obama at the time said, yes, I would talk to Iran and I talked to North Korea. 
And the entire Washington establishment thought, oh, look at that. He's naive. He's made a gaffe. Turns out the American people like the fact that President Obama was willing to talk to other countries. So I, I don't think that these things have quite the political co consequence. Uh, that's just my two right. cents. And, and, and I, 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 I thought the timing of it, but it, I, the actual, sure, who doesn't who doesn't believe that, you know, you should have a back channel of, you know, we'll go through the Swiss embassy. I have the hell you to do that stuff. But, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, but I, I, I do... I, I do think that, you know, party, our coalition needs to, to, to be intact. And I think all, every coalition member owes something to other coalition members to, to do this in a politically pragmatic way. Because my own belief, and, and I, I, I certainly think the Democratic Party has historically and today has many flaws, it is the only hope for democracy. We don't have any, that's it. If, if we, as Democrats, if we don't do everything we can to win elections, we're letting this country down. We really are. We're our only hope. Tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I, if they get a hold of this thing, look what they did. And they're ready to do the same thing again. And when you're in an existential threat like that, coalition partners have obligations to each other. And one of the obligations is not run around in primary and other Democrats. I think... I think uh... I think you two probably agree on that uh, on that issue. Uh, Ro Khanna, you have been, uh, you always are a good guest. We want to get you on again. And all you out there, you ought to look at his Boston Globe column on economic patriotism. It really is a, a, a wonderful roadmap that Democrats ought to pursue. Uh, and the abortion issue is important. Uh, corruption, saving democracy is the most important issue facing us. But um, Congressman, you really wrote an interesting, provocative, and thoughtful column, and I hope people take a look at it. I appreciate it. I appreciate always being on. It's always it's great sparring. And I certainly agree with you on the Democratic Party being the great hope. And I also think, you know, we should give credit to past Democratic leaders and current Democratic leaders. You don't have to tear down the past to build the future. Our guest is Tyler Bridges, a great Louisiana political journalist. James says there is no better. He's written a wonderful book about the most unusual, bizarre, incredible, fabulous, any term you want to come up with, college football game ever played. It's called Five Laterals and a Trombone, the 1982 Stanford-Cal-Berkeley game. Set the scene for us, Tyler. Yeah, so in 1982, Cal and Stanford were playing the 85th version of what's called the big game. It's the oldest rivalry west of the Mississippi. It's a big deal in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's for bragging rights because typically the teams were not very good, and that was certainly the case in 1982, although Stanford had a bowl game on, on, uh, on the line. And also that day, Stanford was led by a quarterback who was seen perhaps as the best quarterback in the history of college football up to that point, John Elway. And he was going for the Heisman Trophy that year against Herschel Walker of Georgia, of course, who's been in the news a lot lately. So the two teams were, uh, were playing that day at Memorial Stadium uh, in, at Cal in Berkeley. And uh, Stanford was down by 
two points with a minute left, and that quarterback, John Elway, led Stanford to an unbelievable last-minute comeback, including a fourth and 17 completion on a pass that only he could make from Stanford's own 13-yard line. Then Stanford went down the field. Stanford called timeout in field goal range with eight seconds left. Elway called the timeout. The field goal kicker came on. Stanford kicked the field goal. Stanford had won the big game. Stanford fans are going bonkers. Cal fans are despondent. There's only four seconds left on the clock, just the kickoff, and then the game's over, and Stanford has won, or so it seemed out. And then what happened? So then uh, there was a squib kick, and Cal started lateraling the ball, and they lateraled the ball, and they lateraled the ball. And at one point, it seemed like the Cal ball carrier was down. Some of the Stanford players on the sideline started to run out of the field. The Stanford band, which was on the sideline, started to run out onto the field. The students who were locked to the Stanford axe, the winner of the game would get the axe, and Stanford had won it the year before. So the student, uh, students with the Stanford axe ran out of the field, thinking the game was over, but it wasn't. Well, tell us. We're in suspense. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the, 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 the last guy gets the lateral, and there's only one thing between him and the end zone, and that is the Stanford band and their red jackets. And they scatter out of the way. He runs through them. It doesn't hit anybody until he gets to the end zone. His name is Kevin Moen. And there is a friend of mine was in the end zone, a trombone player named Gary Terrell. Gary Terrell was knocked over by Kevin Moen. And uh, there was such confusion on the field. Uh, uh, maybe 30 to 45 seconds later, the, uh, the referees huddled and signaled that Cal had won the touch, had scored a touchdown, that they had won this game. But the 76,000 fans in the stadium, they couldn't quite figure out what was going on. So there's just mass confusion. Exactly. Wait, who won the game? What happened? But uh, uh, you, that's how things turned out. You 40 did years an extraordinary ago. job. This, this is something that happened 40 years ago. You're writing about, I think, 21 seconds, and uh, you interviewed what 375 people or something for this book. And I also should say, yeah, that, interviewed that, that you're right. Stanford yeah. had, as you know, of course, had John Elway, but uh, Cal had a pretty good linebacker named Ron Rivera, who's now the coach of the Washington Commanders. Yeah, and he was gracious enough to write one of the forwards for the book along with John Elway. Yeah, Cal, Ron Rivera was Cal's leading tackler that year. And, and uh, when I interviewed uh, Coach Rivera, he said it's just a, a testament to the idea that you never give up. You fight until the last second. And uh, when the clock ticked off, uh, Cal was able to score that final touchdown and, and win the 85th version of the big game. And, and again, it's the craziest, wildest finish ever in the history of college football, maybe yeah. in any sport. Oh, so uh, <clears throat> Tyler, you have some familiarity with the, uh, with the Stanford band. I do, James. I was uh, a member of the Stanford band right. for four years. I played trombone um, along with the guy who's the trombone in the book. And uh, the Stanford band is a very irreverent, uh, non-conformist band. Uh, a lot of the older alums at Stanford when I was there hated the band. The students loved the band. And it, I'm sure that no other college band in the country would have ended up uh, on the field, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time as the Stanford band did that, that day 40 so, so years ago. So let's do what sports fans do better than anybody else. Let's do a little second guessing here. I'm sure you're up to that. Uh, should they have run the clock down more than eight seconds? I mean, did, 
they, they, they weren't, to, to the extent that anything but bad could happen, you don't anticipate it. Was any controversy with, with calling time out with eight seconds left? Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, because I interviewed so many people, James, I was trying to get a lot of the little backstories and make their feel, feel, make the reader feel like he or she is in the locker room or on the field or in the press box. And there was even a dispute among the coaches on the Stanford side as to when to call that timeout. But, but John Elway did signal timeout with eight seconds left, um, bring in the field goal kicker for a 35-yard kick. And uh, I, I can tell you that I think with that uh, running, not, not running down the clock down to zero, I think coaches and players ever since then have made sure not, not to allow enough time for a final kickoff so, as, uh, as Paul Wiggins did that day. I know you've seen coach. this 10,000 times and you talk to 10,000 people. Did the guy's knee touch the turf on, I guess it was the third lateral? If, if you were a replay official, what would you, what would you rule? Yeah, well, and just to say, that was one of the neat things, I think, ultimately, James, that happened was the game was not televised live. There was no instant replay. And, and at the, the guy who had the ball at that moment was a freshman running back from Cal on that kickoff named Dwight Garner. And it either seemed that he had, uh, his knee had touched and, and one of the guys, the guy at the bottom of the pile for the Stanford uh, uh, team told me that his knee was down um, or his forward progress had been stopped. But I interviewed the officials who had the call, interviewed uh, all five surviving officials on the field that day, including the two who had the direct call or non-call, and they both say they, that uh, they think they made the right call, uh, that, he, that the guy was not down. But that's what triggered the play because the Stanford side thought the game was over and, and ran on the field to celebrate an incredible last-minute victory over Cal. So, uh, there's so many interesting things, but one of the really interesting ones you pay attention to was the Cal announcer who made this unbelievable call at the end of the game. And I think some of the other announcers had kind of packed it up. T tell us a little bit about the Cal announcer, because I know that he loved your book. <laughs> and he was a, he was kind of a big player, because we all, we're, although we didn't see it on TV, we think we did. Right. It was like Wilt Chamberlain's game, 100-point game in Hershey. There was 4,000 people there, but 4 million say they were there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so Joe Starkey was calling the game for Cal as the play-by-play -play announcer. And by the way, this is uh, his last year. I think he's 80 years old calling the... Um, uh, the, the Cal Radio, uh, and the big game is this Saturday. But uh, Joe Starkey looking down on the field, uh, he just went berserk. It was almost like, uh, uh, remember the announcer when the, when the Hindenburg right, yeah. uh, uh, went, yeah. went down in flames, just becoming unhinged? And, and I think that Joe Starkey became unhinged adds to the, the mystique, the lore, and, and the, the, the craziness of, of what happened that day. And by the way, I would, if any of your listeners, I hope they'll pick up my book, Five Laterals and a Trombone, but if they want to watch a video of the play, uh, I would say go to the six minute and 48 second version one, because that includes this amazing last minute comeback by Stanford. Again, by John Elway made a, completed a pass that no other quarterback could have completed. And, and when I interviewed John Elway for the book, you remember he went on to a pretty successful yeah, pro football so. career. Yeah. And he told me in his entire college and pro career, he never went for, never had such a swing of emotions from being winning his last game at Stanford, maybe the Heisman Trophy leading Stanford to a bowl game, 
uh, and all of a sudden, three minutes later, it was the most devastating defeat he'd ever seen. Before I turn it over to Al, when I tell people about the book, it, it, the, the reaction is, God, I remember that fucking thing. Jesus Christ, that was unbelievable. I mean, you know, although it wasn't televised, the visual memory of that just sticks with people. I'm, not, I'm trying to think of this, if there was another event, you know, of... Where people just remembered it, and it was just so incomprehensible. When you interview people, do they come out of their chair and want to talk to you about it? And yeah, I remember that fucking day. God damn it! Yeah, I was talking to a, a Stanford guy yesterday who 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 was reading it, and we kept hoping. He told me as he was reading my book, he kept hoping that the outcome would turn out to be different than it actually did. But uh, yeah, it's still something that resonates with people, and 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 the Cal people are still very very excited. Their football team never does anything. Cal people, Stanford people, um, some of those who played that day are still very bitter and disappointed. Others who moved on. Uh, John Elway, when I interviewed him, he said, uh, what happens if the trombone player had tackled him at the two-yard line? What would have happened then? <laughs> I, I want to ask about that band because you were part of that band. Uh, and as you say, it was incredibly colorful. And uh, do you think maybe there was a little bit of booze uh, involved with the with the band as they were marching on the field for what they thought was a victory? Uh, well, more than a little bit of booze uh, and maybe some other uh, substances that were as well. Absolutely, that was part of the Stanford Band tradition. Um, Gary, the trombone player who gets whacked in the end zone, uh, he always had a, a bottle of Jameson's whiskey and uh, he had emptied that bottle out by the time uh, <laughs> the game was over. <laughs> Boy, he would have needed that bottle to make a tackle, but... Uh... Uh, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned earlier some people, you know, still want a different ending. As a loyal Cardinal, was it painful for you to relive that, or was it, was it just such, so incredible, it was almost fun? Uh, I mean, what was it as you were going through this, you know, incredible process of exquisitely reporting that 21 seconds? Yeah, I'll, I'm a Stanford guy through and through. I grew up in Palo Alto going to Stanford football games. I watched Jim Plunkett win the Heisman Trophy for Stanford. Uh, my dad went to the law school at Stanford on the GI Bill. My mother worked at Stanford when I was there as a secretary. Um, but, you know, I'm a political reporter in Louisiana, and my job there is to talk to everybody. And I might be talking to, uh, you, you know how it works, Al. You might be talking to one guy one moment and another person another moment and they hate each other, but you've got to talk to both of them and be able to tell each, each, each of their story, whether they're Democrat, Republican, and uh, got to say your wife is particularly good at that also. So I, I, that was the hat that I wore in working on the book. I just wanted to tell an entertaining, incredible story, give each side their due and uh, hopefully make the reader want to turn the page to find out what happens next. Oh, wow. What a job. James. So let's talk about the Stanford band, because I'm like, what band of a visiting team goes on the field at the end of the game? Was that a spontaneous decision that somebody said, let's go storm the field or play? Or did the band leader say something? Or was it planned out? Or was it, what happened? Sure. So when I was in the band, and again, I graduated in June of 82, I actually listened to the game on the radio in Washington, D.C. that day, so I wasn't there. But Whenever the, at the end of the game, the, the Stanford band would play a post-game concert for fans. And so the band would go down okay. onto the field with about a minute or two left in the game. And if this had happened at Stanford Stadium that day 40 years ago, nothing would have happened because there was a track that separated 
uh, the stands from the field, but at Memorial Stadium, and I'm literally in the press box as we talk right now, looking down on Memorial Field, it's just a few yards from the stands onto the field. So the Stanford band had come out for their post-game concert uh, onto the sidelines, and, and they were on the back line of the end zone, and they were playing the song. Whenever Stanford scored a touchdown, the band would play a song uh, by a band called Free called All Right Now. And so the Stanford band is rocking out All Right Now. Stanford has won the 1982 big game, and they're right on the sidelines, and they, they're ready to charge out on the field uh, because uh, when, they, when, the whistle, when the game is over. And so the, there was, it was uh, very quick, uh, easy for the band then to run out onto the field because they were already right on the sidelines when the ball was kicked off. And, and there was probably, as you mentioned earlier, a little bit of alcohol and some other substances involved that fueled uh, the band's uh, adrenaline. Start to finish, you interviewed all these people. How long did this project take you? I mean, you started to the time you... Yeah, I started in 2016, and you know I have a full-time job covering politics uh, for the state's biggest newspaper in Louisiana, so I had to work on the side, just slowly but steadily doing interviews. And it's, it's interesting, um, Al, I think you'll particularly appreciate this. You know, when you do a newspaper story, you're looking for a good quote, right? When I was working on five laterals and a trombone, I wasn't looking for good quotes. I was trying to recreate scenes, you know, what was going on in the locker room, who said what, uh, who else was there? Um, in a key moments in the game, um, what did John Elway say to you at that moment? Or what was going through your mind? So I did, I did interviews that would last like four hours where I would really try to understand the background of the, of the key person I was talking to and then also understand what was going through their mind at key points. Again, what I, you know, it's, it's like the old Columbo t uh, TV yeah, show. You remember that time. where the opening scene you saw who did it, and after that, there was not a mystery, but you wanted to keep watching to see how things turned out. And I kept that kind of principle in my mind that everybody who's gonna read five laterals and a trombone is gonna know that Cal won the game. But if I have such great details, backstories, stuff that are just unbelievable, the reader's gonna to wanna to turn the page to see what happens next. I would just say, James, we had in our office, right after that game, we had a, a really devout Stanford grad and fan, uh, a, a wonderful journalist named Rich Yaroslavsky. And we went, I, I swear, Tyler, for two weeks, we'd get about seven or eight of us and we'd get a tennis ball. And we'd go and just lateral as we went by his desk and just to make his pain even greater. Um, that's brutal. It That's was brutal. brutal. I know it was mean. It's what happens when you're young. You know, this only could have been done by a great reporter uh, who is just a, a terrific writer. And, and I'm, I'm in awe of what you did. And James, I think we would agree. If you're out there and you want a really great read for the holidays, or if you want to give a great gift to someone or gifts to wow. someone, five laterals and a trombone. Wow. It just yeah. is. It's, it's delicious. You know, and I, I think even for a casual football fan, it's just the, the, the depth and the richness of the reporting and just the drama, the way that you get caught up in, in the story. It, 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 like I say, it, it's, it's visual memory. Just says, Tyler, before you go, I've got a political question. What are the chances that John Kennedy yeah. runs for governor of Louisiana? And just so you know, Tyler wrote a big story. Uh, my so personal guess. This is something he, he's interview a lot of people out. Yeah, I've known Senator Kennedy for a long time. Uh, my personal guess is he will not run for governor, although he just made it seem as if he's on the verge of announcing by 
saying he's seriously considering the race for governor. And, and James, as you know, you know, he was just reelected as a senator. Senator is not that big of a job in Louisiana, but the governor, you know this better than me, the governor is, that's, that's the big Every, cajun, every right? person used to say every boy, but uh, you know, now it's, because we've had Brother Blanco there. Every person in, that grows up in Louisiana and cares anything about politics wants to be governor one day. No one wants to be governor. Don't comment on this, but uh, I will say as someone who covers politics up here, I am much higher on your other senator, Senator Cassidy, than I am on Senator Kennedy, but we can just leave that out there. Uh, I, I, again, five laterals and a trombone. Right, James? Everybody ought to buy it and give it to their friends for Christmas or Hanukkah. You bet. Thank you, Tyler. This has been really fun. Now's the time to save money however you can. Now for the letters from our viewers, which are, as always, just terrific, uh, James. And I just want to make sure I can get them all organized here. Kyle in Portland, Oregon, asked, this is looking ahead, how do we fix a primary system where the loudest, most extreme 10% of a party has a disproportionate influence? Well, now... I think we're out of fix is, is, is a kind of word, but now they're talking about pushing Nevada first. Did you see that? I did. If New Hampshire will hold its primary January 1st, 2023, if they have to. Uh, so I, I, think, I think Nevada may go second. Iowa may be out. But. The New Hampshire primaries become not that significant anymore. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of changing in, in the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I like it, and you like it, and, you know, I had fond memories. They always got beat in 92, and it's always kind of fun to go up there as a commentator, and you see everybody, and everybody's in the same ball, but it, it, it's, in Iowa, it's just, yeah. I don't know if I want to go to that again. And so, I mean, it's right, I don't know how you make it more democratic, and some people say, well, it should be, you know, super regional primaries. Well, that just does nothing but value money and politics. Exactly. I, I don't, you know, I, 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 I don't know how to fix it. A start of New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina is a pretty good test. Uh, not perfect. There are, people will say there are limitations there, but it's geographically dispersed. It's demographically dispersed. Uh, you know, New Hampshire, you're right, is overwhelmingly white, not as much so as it used to be. There's a big, big uh, Hispanic vote in Nevada, and there's a huge uh, black vote in South Carolina. And that's not a bad one, two, three start. Big union vote in, in Right, right. Uh, the next question is from Bernie in North Falmouth, Massachusetts. He said, isn't there any way for us to require members of the House of Representatives and the Senators to be subject to term limits? I hope not, Bernie. Term limits are a bad idea. Even when I have a Congress that I think is really a bad one, uh, the voters should be, um, should be those who decide on term limits. What you ought to focus on instead, Bernie, is doing something about gerrymandered district. That's the problem, not term limits. I mean, some people you want to serve, you know, seven, eight, ten terms in the House, five, six in the Senate. Some people you'd like to get them out after one term. So there shouldn't be a uniform uh, limit like that. Now, I, I, you know, I, again, I go back to, I'm kind of a one-trick pony here, but I, I, 
if you attack fundraising and you attack and you regulate the way that they can raise money, you, you're going to do more to give yourself better government than anything else. You know, the, one of my favorite sayings, and I'm sure I've said on this show before, but I'll say it again, is Eric Hoffer, the longshoreman philosopher. Right. Every movement begins as a cause, moss into a business, ends up a racket. Well, the government of the United States started as, as, a, as a kind of cause. The gentlemen were writing the, you know, laws and the Constitution and everything, and people tried to change them. We had, you know, civil war, and we had women right to vote, and we had civil rights, and we had Stonewall, and we had everything else. I got news for you. It, the, the government of the United States is now a full-fledged racket. Yep. That's what it is. Yep, yep. Uh, and James, you will you will like this one. Joe in Westchester, New York. Any chance Liz Cheney could become Speaker of the House of Representatives? <laughs> it's always better, you know. So we we talk about this. If she can get four Republican votes, she's Speaker. <laughs> it might be probably impossible to do, but I don't know. Some of the lefties, yeah. some of the lefties in the Democratic Caucus, you know, might 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 vote. They would be so short-sighted. They, they, I, I don't think they could do it. I think the heat would be too big. Yeah, maybe. It's Liz Cheney or, or, or Kevin McCarthy. Hmm. Life is about cho- choices. I mean, from one of the most courageous people in American politics to the most pliable human being that ever lived. Yep. I, I would hope so. I'm dubious, but I certainly would like it. It's, 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 it's an interesting topic. Yeah. But uh, you, you got to, and someone tells me she's working to get for a Republicans. I don't know that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Stephan in Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, wow. which actually uh, both, yeah. both Josh Shapiro and John Fetterman uh, uh, carried, that, uh, carried that county, asked, does Biden have a budget reconciliation option available to use during the remainder of his current administration? And what would you like to see in that package? I'll tell you what's key. I think, I was told by a couple of senators that there is a budget reconciliation measure possible in the lame duck session. That's really important because it won't be possible after that. Because budget reconciliation has to, where you can get a majority vote, you get it through the Senate, and you suspend some other procedures. You, you, you can't get it through the House. You can't get it through this Republican House. But if you can get something in the lame duck, you can do a number of things. You can do the debt ceiling, maybe a little bit on child stuff that wasn't due before. So if, if, if you can get, and the parliamentarian doesn't create a problem, the place to look, Stefan, for a reconciliation would be in the lame duck. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's a lot better than I do, but boy, they, they better do that. Because they'll do it. Yep. Uh, yep. What's the, what's the argument not to do it? No, there's there's no argument not to do it. It's just can you do it and get 50 votes? And I think the answer is yes. Certainly on the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling is one of the great phony issues in America. And the Republicans, House Republicans, think they can use that next year as leverage. So they will do everything they can to, to block it. But you got 50 votes, and, and and you're able to do it by parliamentary rules. Do it. Explain to our listeners or viewers 
why the debt ceiling is such a bullshit issue. Oh, it, it, right. it, the debt ceiling has nothing to do with current or future spending. It only has to do with paying your bills for past spending. And if you don't want to pay your bills, if you want to default, if you want to jeopardize the full faith and credit of the United States, then, you know, don't do the debt ceiling. Uh, and uh, that's, that's all it is. It is just a totally, totally phony political talking point. James Jane, Jan, in Wales, UK. God, it's good to hear from the Brits. They're, oh, they're, they're surfacing now. Are red states still worth fighting for, or is it better to maximize results in blue states and big cities? Well, being somebody that lives in a red state that has a Democratic governor, that has made a staggering amount of difference being governor as opposed to what we had before, and, you know, we, you know, people live there. Democrats live in red states. Look, look at Kansas, all right? And if a red state Democrats feel, and I know because I'm one, is that blue state Democrats are all into themselves and they're just not very well deportioned around the country. But if we want to be a national party, you know, there's a lot of red states, and we got to include these people in our part in our message. And by the way, uh, Georgia used to be a red state, and, and people went in and organized. So, uh, yes, I, I, yes, I, I want a, a, a really broad-based party, and I want a broad-based coalition, and I want a broad-based geographic coalition. Rebecca and Cedar Edge, Colorado. Good question. How big an issue is gerrymandering? What should be doing as a part of the system? It is a humongous issue, Rebecca. First of all, and, and this really is not a partisan point at all, look down when, you know, the Times or someone prints the outcome of all the House races and they put percentages. Look down, 62, 65, 68, 59, 74. With gerrymandering and campaign finance laws, incumbents have enacted an incumbent's protection racket. And it is, I mean, you take Ohio. Ohio is probably a 55% Republican state now. That legislature came up with a redistrict plan. They, they actually lost a couple in the Senate, or rather in the election, 10 to 5 Republicans. And it's just, a, it, it's a terrible racket. And I would, the, unfortunately, the Supreme Court wants to duck the issue because I guess they like the fact that Republicans dominate now. And Democrats do it as well. Maryland, Illinois. But uh, I, I think if everybody could have an independent redistricting commission, it would be good. The problem now is that those are disproportionately in Democratic states, uh, Colorado, Virginia, which is still purple, blue, uh, California, and, and they're not in Florida uh, or uh, Ohio. Uh, so I, I, I think gerrymandering is a huge problem. It creates every incentive for people to get in office elected only by their base and not to think about ways to reach across the the aisle. Yeah, I, if, and it's a it's a corruption thing. It is because the, the, the system are behind this, and the courts, you know, Shelby County, they refuse to, to get in. The Supreme Court, you know, how much money they're going to find? You have about eighty million dollars in, in uh, soft soft money, or dark money, in North Carolina. I mean, I went to taking over the North Carolina Supreme Court, tens of millions of yep. dollars. Yep. Everything comes back 
corruption. It does. And, you know, one thing I, uh, one delight of the many delights on election night was the Ohio Republicans, maybe one of the most corrupt legislatures in the country. I think their last two speakers have been indicted or under the threat of indictment. Uh, and they came up with a, a, a terrible gerrymandering plan. And one of the targets they were going after was was in, in, in Lucas, in um, uh, uh, Toledo. Uh, and they were really going to turn that from a blue to an R district. And the problem was that they ran this nutbag, Majewski. And so what happens? Uh, they lose. So I kind of like it when they uh, get handed, but I, uh, or handed a defeat. But I got to tell you, gerrymandering is a huge problem. Our last... By the way, not just at the federal level. Oh, the state legislatures. Yes. It's unfrickin' believable. And it's all corruption. Ohio it's a corrupt state. And North Carolina, one Democrat told me that they would have to win, I think I have this right, something approaching 60% of the popular vote in state legislative races to get a majority. That's how badly redistricted it is. And the only good thing that came out of there was at least they couldn't get a, the Republicans couldn't get a super majority. So uh, Roy Cooper, a very good governor, uh, has a, um, has, has, still has a veto pen. James, our last question, I'm going to combine two, uh, and that is um, Derek in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, wants to know who you would like to see on the 2024 Democratic ticket. And, and uh, I'm going to combine that with Matthew in Silver Spring, Maryland, who asked, is Mitch Landrieu the future of 2024. So, all right, I've, I've tossed it right down the middle, James. Are you ready? Right. Well, for, first of all, I, I think Ms. Landry would be an exceedingly formidable uh, candidate for the Democratic nomination. But the question of, of is this. In every, you know, every Democrat that I know likes President Biden. Every Democrat that I know thinks that, that President Biden has overcome Adversity has shown skill, determination, integrity, humility, humanity. I you get back, 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 back. All right, courage, absolutely. And I hope he takes a whole long, hard look at whether he should run or not. And it, it has everything to do because I'm 78, and I, of course, it, you know, I, I'm experiencing old age. And I watched the president, and he, he is, he's, he's 80. And he would be 86 at the end of his term. And he has much to reflect on his life that is honorable and decent and good. Not, not just that, I don't say an outstanding life. And I, I hope he considers taking a victory. Yep. I do too, because when it comes to age, I'm creeping up on him really quickly, uh, James, faster than you are. And uh, also, I would say if he should, decide to take that victory lap he will have had one of the most he will be one of the most successful one-term presidents in the history of america uh and and that's i mean if you take that domestic packages they got through i don't know any president you gotta go back to fdr to find a president who had a first two years that was more productive than joe biden and uh as you say he's probably conducted uh the ukraine conflict uh, it's been the most skillful foreign policy, uh, uh, I think, of any president in a long, long time. So he would have a lot uh, to take that victory lap on. So we will see. We will see. Keep those. Please keep those um, letters coming in. You know where to send them. Tell us your name. Tell us where you're from, because we really look forward to them. If we didn't get to it this week, we'll try next week.
Hey, James, in our outrage section, let's talk about the winners and losers in this uh, midterm election. Uh, obviously, the Democrats were winners in general. Republicans were losers. Seems to me the big winners on one side was Gretchen Whitmer and the other Ron DeSantis. Tell me if you agree and then explain why. Well, first of all, it's hard not to agree. And, and you know, it used to be you know, Florida was a swing state. I mean, we carried Florida twice. I think Obama carried it twice. And for whatever reason, it it, it sure was gone this time. And, you know, it probably seemed, but by the same token, Michigan was always a kind of purple state, but a really, really traditionally strong Republican Party. And Big Brett, she just, she just mowed them down and wiped them out. And the kind of interesting thing, most of the people that won election for were women in, in Michigan. And so that's going yep. to give her, you know, she's a winner and it's going to increase her profile. There's no doubt about it, but they took the state house back. I mean, they, they ran the table there. Now, they had particularly, you know, the, the Republican Party got away from them. Uh, you see, we had a chairman of the Michigan Republican Party is like blaming the crazies. But I got news for you, dude. That's your party now. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yep, I think other than the president, there may not be, you know, if Nancy Pelosi is stepping down, Whitmer may be as important Democrat as there is in the country. Yeah, and uh, a couple other, uh, another Republican that people tend to forget that's going to be a player is Brian Kemp. Yep. And, you know, Brian Kemp, you know, he won big. He kind of stood up to Trump. He's got a real right-wing message. He's not as polarizing as DeSantis. You know, he he was he was definitely a, a winner, and I don't think it means to a national stage anything. But but Josh Shapiro ran a campaign that that they ought to study or put it at the Harvard Business School. Yep. I mean, they did everything, and the real the real gold medal in a Democratic Party goes to these people that had the foresight, the courage, the guts to interfere in these Republican primaries. Look at, at, at yeah, we picked up three House seats in, in Illinois, which is almost attributable to the fact that J.B. Prisca got involved in that Republican primary to drive their vote down. The same thing happened in Western Michigan. Same thing happened to Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Maryland, Maryland. Yes, and and this was a breathtaking success, and and it has to be recognized as such. And it took some guts. And Sean Patrick Maloney, who got beat, who was primary, of course, <laughs> by the leftists. But, and, 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 but, but you know, they said, let's go for broke. And people, it was a bad cycle and nothing going to happen. And they sort of fought and scammed and fought their way. And uh, boy, that, 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 it worked it, it, in every place it worked. Another shout out I want to give is to uh, Scott Fairchild and the entire campaign for uh, Catherine Cortez Mastro. They won by 6,000 votes. And man, that Adam Laxalt was as bad as any of them. And that was a, a, a really bad cycle. We lost the governorship, you know, fairly good. Now, they had a pretty good chance. Well, let me, let me just tell you, I will give two more big shout outs. Number right. one, Liz Cheney. Uh, she went, she came out against the Arizona ticket. It appears that the Arizona Republican ticket, it appears she's going to go three for three out there. Uh, and she endorsed Alyssa Slotkin and Abigail Spanberger. Uh, and I, she, two Democrats who she noted 
she disagrees with in some issues, but it'd be much better. And they were both in tough districts, James, and they won. Uh, Liz Cheney may be, um, you know, a pariah in her own party, but she's a she's a force, a factor, and an incredibly admirable figure in national politics. And the second shout shout out I'd give were to those election officials all over the country who under threats and harassment and phony charges did their patriotic duties. You know, we had a remarkably clean and well-run election and, and those election workers really are patriots. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's so funny, but you, you know, everybody votes, you know, you, you know, Miss Mabel down there. I mean, you know, they're right. the same people, the idea that there's anything about this, like anything else, and 2% of them probably ain't worth a damn, but some of these people are just patriotic people, and they do this every election. Right. When I, when I, you know, I lived in New Orleans, before I moved, a polling place right on the street, I knew all the people that worked there. Hey, Mr. Cobra, how you doing? Come in. Boom. Right. Well, the big losers, I think we agree, Trump and uh, the whole MAGA candidates and Senator Rick Scott, the unattractive uh, senior senator from the state of Florida. Uh, I guess he's a junior senator. He played a role, a big role in supporting these nutbag candidates. And boy, do they get wiped out. So anybody else we want to bring up? That's a pretty good list. I'll bring up one person that is Laura Kelly. Okay. I mean, Kansas. Kansas. Kind of a matronly, you know, kind of soft-spoken person. Uh, she's got a tough operation, man. Ooh, man. Okay, Kansas. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Henson Shaving, Raycon, and Upside in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.